Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. This is a Design for Living Big Book meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. My name is Steph, and I am a recovering anorexic and compulsive restrictor and your chairperson for today. To open the meeting, let us have a moment of quiet meditation, followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Today, we are delighted to have Denise joining us to share her experience, strength, and hope focused on the topic of more about alcoholism. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Denise R., compulsive overeater from Chicago, recovered for today, one day at a time, of course. Um, grateful to be here and really an honor to serve. Um, so we're going to talk about more about alcoholism today. But before I get started, I just want to start with a quick prayer and just ask God whew, to give me the words. It's my voice, but it's your words, God. And um, please help me set aside everything I think I know about this chapter in the book, about everything. Um, let me just be here to serve you and to serve others. Okay, so my name is Denise R. Um, I'll just qualify really quickly. I um, am maintaining 112 pound weight loss. Um, I do have some photos. I don't know at what point we're going to share them, but I do have some photos to share and maybe it would be good to save them for a little bit later. Um, I've been in OA since 2006 and my abstinence date is July 17th, 2021. Um, okay, so I really identify with this chapter more about alcoholism because I do have um, relapsed in my story. Uh, obviously coming in in 2006 and then my, my abstinent date of, of July of 2021, you know, you can, you know, there's been a history, right? Um, so I would really like to just dig into the book and get started. If everybody um, wants to join me, I'm going to be reading out of the big, big book and then referring a little bit to some of my personal experience. So um, more about alcoholism, chapter three, um, uh, page 30, the first paragraph, it says, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it's not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. And what I really want to talk about in that paragraph is the fact that the great obsession, you know, I always thought my great obsession was about food. I was, I thought, you know, I'm obsessed over food. That's my great obsession. When I was working with my sponsor, the first thing that she taught me was that, you know, the great obsession isn't about food. The great obsession is that I'm going to be able to control and enjoy eating, that I'm going to be able to control and enjoy. So the great obsession for me is really controlling, right, that I'm going to be able to control um, and enjoy my food. And, and I will just say, I do enjoy my food today, 
it's a little bit different, right? I'm not, I'm not managing it the way I, I used to and in the obsessive way that I was. So I did try some controlled eating over the years. Um, you know, like I said, I came in, in in 2006. When I came into OA, I was 186 pounds. I'm 5'2", I'm quite short. Uh, I came in at 186 pounds. I came in from another fellowship. So I knew I needed to get a sponsor, work the steps, you know, and what I needed to do. So I, I you know, I, I started working the steps with uh, a sponsor in the OA 12 and 12. And I did some controlled eating. Uh, I, the dignity of choice pamphlet talks about 301, three meals a day, nothing in between one day at a time. I did that. Um, I lost some weight. I actually got down to 155 pounds, uh, you know, when I started at 186. So I, I lost some weight. I was doing some controlled eating and, and I was doing, um, I was doing well. So I thought, right. Um, later I find it's not just about the food, right? It's not even about the food. It's about my spiritual condition. So we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later, but I will say, um, as I look back now, I was really treating it like a diet. I really was. I still had the diet mentality. I still, you know, when I first came in, I thought that's, you know, what I was doing and that I was doing it correctly, but let's just continue on and, and read. So we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. And fully concede really to me means out of denial. You know, I'm out of denial anymore that I really am a true compulsive overeater. I know in my heart that I have this. And as we get on, you know, we'll figure out why, how I know, how did I come to know in my heart? So the next paragraph down, uh, we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were gaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably, inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our, of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. So the disease is progressive. That's what, that's what the big book is telling me. Um, I can tell you for myself, there were times when I binged until I had to unbutton my pants. You know, even when, even in public with, with people around me or at a family gathering where I was in front of other people, I would, you know, pull out my shirt and I'd have to unbutton my pants because I, I binged so, so much food or ate so much food that I, I had to um, relieve myself in that way. Um, it's, it's embarrassing to even admit, but that's the truth. That's, that's what's happened to me and in, in, in that's part of my story. Um, another thing I could say that is progressive is, you know, I've gone through a, a drive-through here and there and, and, and placed an order and, and you know, an ate, and then that wasn't enough. And I'd go, I'd go through another drive-through sometimes within the hour. Um, very progressive for me. It was, it was never enough. Um, I often wanted more. Uh, let's go on to um, looking at page 31. It says, in some instances, there, and I'm at the top of 31, in some instances, there has been brief recovery, followed always by a still worse relapse. 
Um, when I think of that, you know, oh, actually, before I even say that, uh, a little bit further down in the next paragraph, it says, by every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore, non-alcoholic. And I think I tried to convince myself that, you know, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not that bad. Maybe I'm not a real alcoholic, right? I'd have little brief periods of, I can do this. I can manage this. I can control this. And then it, it just, you know, uh, my, my mind, of course, the twisted thinking, I'm thinking, well, maybe I'm really not like all of them. I don't do, I don't do that. I haven't picked up something from the garbage or which I have, um, or something, you know, that someone shares at a meeting. I'm thinking, okay, that's not me. That's not me. But what do I find out? So if we go on to read further down on 31, where it talks about here are some of the methods, this is where I really identified it, right? Here are some of the methods we have tried. Drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, never drinking alone, never drinking in the morning, drinking only at home, never having it in the house, never drinking during business hours, drinking only at parties, switching from scotch to brandy, drinking only natural wines, agreeing to resign if, if ever drunk on the job, taking a trip, not taking a trip, swearing off forever with and without a solemn oath, taking more physical exercise, reading inspirational books, going to health farms and sanitariums, accepting voluntary commitment to asylums. We could increase the list ad infinitum. So yeah, so what I really wanna talk about here are the methods. You know, what did I try? Well, I'll tell you what, back in the day I tried and this is even before program, I tried the cabbage soup diet. I tried the hard boiled egg diet. I tried to eat a banana only all day diet. Um, I tried the hard boiled egg diet. I tried eating sugar-free. Let's try sugar-free. Um, let's try eating whole grain. Let's try whole wheat, whole wheat bread only. Let's try limiting certain foods to a certain day of the week. I'll only have this food on this day. Um, I'm gonna only have it once a week. And then, you know, what happens? I end up having it another day of the week. Well, no, I changed my mind. I'm gonna have it this day and this day. And, you know, and before you know it, I'm eating it every day again. Um, increased exercise. I've increased exercise to eat more. I've gotten, you know, on a treadmill uh, multiple times so that I could eat more or to work something off that I, that I thought that I needed to work off when I overate. Um, I can tell you diets work, okay? I've been on diets, I've lost weight, they work. But the problem is I can't always diet. You know, diets will work when, when my mind, I guess, is all in, but they don't work forever. Um, and I can tell you that because I've had to go on too many where I've lost and then gained and then lost and then gained. Um, I just never stayed on them. That's the truth. Diets can work, but I, I can't stay on them. At least they can't work for me in, in, in my condition, a, a, a you know, compulsive reader of my type. Diets just don't work. Um, okay, let's see. Let's go back to the book, uh, bottom of page 31. We do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Um, I would do, you know, I would talk to myself. I, I would do things like eat something in threes. I would say, okay, I'm going to have 
three of these and then I'm not gonna have any more. Um, I can tell you, I did with this with different kinds of foods or if I'm in the office and someone brings something in, oh, I'm gonna have three and that's it. Three was like my number, but I'll tell you what, it kept changing. My daughter, one time she brought home all of her Halloween candy and I thought, okay, I'm gonna have three of my favorite pieces. That's it, just three. Before you know it, I said, no, really what I meant, I'm gonna have three of the, the, the chocolate kind and then three of the non-chocolate kind, you know? That's what I really meant. And then an hour later, no, I really meant three of each of my favorites. And that before you know it, I had 21 you know, pieces of candy and you know, half of her Halloween candy is gone. You know, that's, that's how my mind thinks. Try some control eating. Yeah, it didn't work for me. Um, okay, let's go ahead and go to page 32, where it talks about, uh, let's see, where am I? I'm looking at my notes. First paragraph. Though there is no way of proving it, we believe that early in our drinking careers, most of us could have stopped drinking. But the difficulty is that few alcoholics have enough desire to stop while there is yet time. We have heard of a few instances where people who showed definite signs of alcoholism were able to stop for a long period because of an overpowering desire to do so. So we're going to talk about desire uh, as we jump into the man of 30. So I'm going to keep going into the man of 30. A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He was very nervous in the morning after these bouts and quieted himself with more liquor. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw that he would get nowhere if he drank at all. Once he started, he had no control, whatever. He made up his mind that until he had been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another drop. An exceptional man, he remained bone dry for 25 years and retired at the age of 50 after a successful and happy business career. Then he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. Out came his carpet slippers and, and a bottle. In two months, he was in a hospital, puzzled and humiliated. He tried to regulate his drinking for a while, making several, several trips to the hospital meantime. Then gathering all of his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal. Every attempt failed. Though a robust man at retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. You know, so like I said, I came into OA in 2006 and, um, and I did lose some weight. Um, I was using the OA literature, not even knowing about the big book. So when someone mentioned to me the big book in 2015, or actually, I'm sorry, 2011, um, I was really intrigued. I, I wanted to learn more about the big book and I wanted to try to do the steps in the big book. I thought, well, that would be good. I, you know, I've never done the steps in the big book. So I started working with a big book thumper and um, this big, big book thumper uh, was, was great. A lot of good information. Um, I really started to, I kind of felt like it was really restrictive actually at one point, I, but I did start losing a, a lot more weight. So as I said, I got down to 155 uh, when I was working 
um, originally on my own with, with, an, uh, with a sponsor in the OA 12 and 12. When I started working with the Big Book Thumper, I actually lost a lot more weight. I got down to 128 pounds, which is what I was in high school, you know? Um, so I'm in my 30s and I actually got down to what I was in high school and I thought, wow, you know, this is really great. I feel, I feel really good in this normal body size again. I hadn't been in a normal body size for, for quite some time. The thing with the Big Book Thumper is I kept ending up at back, uh, back at step one. You know, uh, she was she was she was quite strict, or I felt she was quite strict at the time. Um, I felt restrictive. No, no chewing gum, no drinking coffee. You know, if I did something um, or or had you know what some people refer to as a slip, you know, she would say, "Oh, we're going back at step one. We got to go back to step one." And so then I kept going backwards. I finally had finished my four step at one point, and I was ready to give away my step five, and. Um, she put me back at step one right before I was ready to do step five because I had a, like a piece of cheese on a sandwich or something. And I was just so devastated. I was like, I am never going to, never going to be able to do this. Why am I wasting my time? You know? So it was at that point that I had decided I wasn't going to work with her anymore. And I was just going to quit working in the big book. And I was going to a phone meeting the phone meeting um, at the time was, you know, that I was attending was the coffee shop and they were splitting up this phone meeting because uh, they were going to start a new phone meeting. And, and I, I loved both the parties at both ends of the phone meeting. And um, it was really hard for me to decide because I had been listening to it, you know, regularly and going on these retreats and, and conventions with this particular group of, of fellows. And so when they were splitting up, it was at the same time that that this big book thumper had put me back at step one. So at that point, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I got this. I got this. I can do this on my own. I quit working with the big book thumper. I quit listening to those phone meetings. And actually at that time, because I had already lost the weight, um, I thought I had arrived. I really did. I thought I had arrived. Um, so let's go ahead and continue reading right here. It says, this case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we, and I'm on the top of 33, most of us believe, have believed if we remained sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink normally. But here's a man who at 55 years found he was just where he had left off at 30. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in a short time as bad as ever. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. And, you know, the meetings I was attending were mostly OA 12 and 12, but I carried around that big book like I, like I knew what I was doing, right? It was, it was attached to my hip. And I really thought, that, um, that I had arrived and that I could, I could do this on my own. Um, it wasn't until I left, I ended up quitting, like I said, quitting the big book thumper, quitting the phone meetings. I quit away altogether. Um, you know, I, I ended up leaving for three years. And um, before I actually go into that, I wanna just read a little bit more on, uh, let's see. Yeah, page 34 at the top. Before I get into that, I just want to read this quickly. As we look back, we feel we had gone on drinking many years beyond the point where we could quit on our willpower. If anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving liquor alone for one year. 
If he is a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there is scant chance of success. In the early days of our drinking, we occasionally remained sober for a year or more, becoming serious drinkers again later. Though you may be, though you may be able to stop for a considerable period, you may yet be a potential alcoholic. With we think few to whom this book would appeal can stay dry anything like a year. Some will be drunk the day after making their resolutions. Most of them within a few weeks. And I'm actually going to continue a little bit further on. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. Many of us felt that we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. This utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. So I just want to share, you know, when I did leave, I really thought I could do it on my own. I really thought that I could handle this. Um, for three years, I was gone, 2012 to 2015. And my home group was texting me, you know, to come back because they had started to see some being on Facebook friends and things like that. They had started to see my weight climb back up, right? Um, they started to see that I was really hurting just by me not attending meetings, not reaching out, not staying connected with the fellows that I knew from my home group. Um, so they were texting me to come back. And I did go back in the rooms in 2015. I did. But I can tell you, I wish I wish I could say 2015 was my my date of abstinence and that I you know worked the steps and got recovered, but I can't because I was back in the room and in relapse for seven more years. So let's go ahead and I'm gonna read um. Let's see. I'm going to go ahead and read on 35 just to stay on time. Um, our first example is a friend we show called Jim. Um, this man has a, has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable, he had a commendable World War record. He is a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He is an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. To his constant Donation, he found himself drunk a half dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he, if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family, for whom he had a deep affection. So just like Jim, you know, I made a beginning. I did. I made a beginning. Um, I had a great food plan. I started writing my food down every day. You know, when I first came in, I was taught, you know, you, you write your food down, you send it to your sponsor. You know, I was doing that. But what was I missing? I failed to enlarge my spiritual life. 
you know, I was, I was checking off the boxes, you know, food plan, check, Texas sponsor, check, you know, doing the reading, check, working through the steps, check, check, check. Um, yes, some of these steps do involve a relationship with a higher power, but was I developing that relationship? Well, I'll tell you, you know, I would go to the meetings and I thought this is what sponsoring was. Someone said, hey, would you be willing to sponsor me? And I said, love to. And that's the end. They didn't call. I didn't call them, but I was sponsoring. They asked me. So I thought that's really what sponsoring was all about. I really was not taking them through the book like I am today. So what was my spiritual, you know, how was my spiritual fitness? What was my spiritual life like? Was I really carrying any kind of a message? Was I sharing at meetings? Sure. You know, probably enough for someone to say, hey, would you sponsor me? But I wasn't really carrying the message. I wasn't helping others. I wasn't sponsoring people and helping them, you know, find their path to God. My sponsor taught me that sponsoring is when you, you know, take someone's hand and you put that hand, put their hand in God's hand. That's what my sponsor taught me sponsoring is. Was I doing that? Absolutely not. I thought I was. I thought I was recovered. I thought I was, you know, living this great um, abstinent life and recovery. And the truth was, I wasn't even talking to fellows. Was I making outreach calls? No. Um, was I even talking to God? I mean, what was my prayer meditation like? Let me think about it. I would read a daily reader. And then I'd put it down and then I'd get ready for work. <laughs> I don't know if that's really for a meditation. Was I listening to God? Was I talking to God? Was my relationship with God building? No, it's much different today than it was back then when I thought I had recovery. So let's talk a little bit again now. It says um, on top of page 36, yet he got drunk again. We asked Jim, we asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. And this is is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt so hungry, so I stopped at the roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place which was familiar for I had been going to it for years. I had eaten there many times during the month I was sober. I sat down at the table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still, no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being too smart being any too smart, but I felt reassured that I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Wow, so that story I can really relate to. Um, and actually, there were many times where, like I said, I tried some controlled, uh, control, controlled eating you know, like going into the office and seeing, you know, a box of sugary food there. And I'd say, oh, I'm just going to have half, right? I have a half. And then all of a sudden, an hour later, I walk by, the box is still there. And, 
you know, there's my half, my other half is just sitting right there. <laughs> so, you know, there I am, the compulsive overeater in me would just go ahead and take the other half. So I've, I've tried that controlled drinking or controlled eating. Um, but what I will say here is I want to share more about, um, you know, what it is today, how, how that is, uh, how it affects me today. Um, this is how the disease is sneaking for me. I was peeling a bag of carrots. I weigh and measure my food. And um, I was peeling uh, uh, some carrots uh, out of a bag of carrots. I was at the end of the bag. I had literally one carrot left and it was probably the size of a highlighter. I mean, it was pretty small here. I have a highlighter. It's probably about this big. And I was peeling this bag of carrots and I, you know, I measure my, my food, right? So at the end of the bag, I had this one, this one carrot left and I was already at the two cups that I had measured. And suddenly I had this thought, well, once it cooks down, the carrots are gonna shrink. And I think I can, I think I can squeeze this, this one carrot in, you know? So I went ahead and I peeled the carrot, cut it up, put it in. It's probably a, a you know, a quarter cup more of carrot. And went about my business, you know, justifying in my head. I, I ate the carrot. The next morning, it didn't even dawn on me that night when I did my nightly review. The next morning, it dawned on me. Hmm. I don't think that was really very honest of me. Hmm. I think I need to call my sponsor. <laughs> you know, I was really feeling at that point like, like Jim. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that I could justify this carrot. And the truth of the matter is, that's the disease thinking, right? that I can just justify this carrot. So I called my sponsor and we talked about it. And sure enough, she said, the food is the last to go, Denise. What's going on in your life? What's going on with your spiritual, you know, your spiritual condition? You know, when I say something to her, like, oh, I, I, I took my will back and I, and I had this carrot. I, I didn't want to throw it away. I didn't want to be wasteful. I, you know, I went ahead and had it. And she, she would say to me, no, nah, no, nah, took my will back. I don't want to hear that. That's not in the big book. What's, what's really going on with you? What is blocking you from God? That's what she said to me. What is blocking you from God? And that's when I realized I haven't really been paying attention to some of the things that have been going on in my life. I really need to do a couple of 10 steps here. My friend was just diagnosed, diagnosed with cancer and we were, you know, we're going to lose her serious and she's doing chemo and everything right now but you know it's, it was something that was weighing really heavy on me um I was dealing with a sponsee that that actually decided she was you know gonna gonna work with someone else she didn't want to she didn't want to finish the step she didn't want to work with me that was devastating um there was another uh fear I had you know my my parents are elderly my mom has Alzheimer's you know, there were some fears surrounding that. So there were things that I was just brushing under the carpet. I was brushing them under the rug. My, my spiritual condition was at risk. So that's how the disease sneaks in with me. I mean, at this point in time, you know, having been, um, you know, working with others and recovered for a while, um, the, disease, the disease sneaks in, you know, with, with a carrot. <laughs> It doesn't sneak in with a sugary dessert. It sneaks in with a carrot for me. 
or I'm measuring broccoli and there's, you know, two extra little broccolis at the top of that, that overflow my, my, my cup. And it's like, okay, I got to take those off, which I do. I take them off. I literally take them off. Uh, a fellow a mentor of mine uh, once said that when she measures her blueberries in the morning and she takes a few off, it's, it's, it's a sense of humility, right? It puts her in a position of humility. I need help. I can't even eat my broccoli without measuring my food because I would eat more. Okay, so I stopped talking to God. That was that was a, a you know a big a big reason you know why I think that my mind plays tricks on me when I'm when I'm not connected to God when I'm when I'm failing to to enhance that relationship. So let me talk a little bit about. Uh, let's see. Oh, it talked about, oh, just recapping. Why did Jim pick up? I'm just glancing at my notes, you know, resentment irritated. And that was what I found too, right? I had words, he had words with the boss, you know, same with me at work. If I have words with the boss, I just, just did a 10 step this week about that actually, um, about my boss, uh, giving me some responsibility and, and taking a team member away. So giving me more and then I'm losing a team member. So I just wrote about that this week. You know, my intention is not to overeat or compulsively overeat, but if I don't clean up my side of the street and keep those things, keep myself in fit spiritual condition, that's exactly where I'll end up. Okay. So let's go ahead and read. Um, thus, let's see, where am I at? Yes. Bottom of page 36, thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was the thread of commitment, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense mental, mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all the reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. So here, you know, I can just share with you when I was working with that big book thumper, I had a lot of knowledge about the big book. I did. I read it. I understood it. You know, I thought I, I have a lot of self-help books. And as a matter of fact, I have a lot of knowledge about self-help. Um, but the reasons for drinking, right, are not necessarily about self-knowledge. I, I had a, a lot of self-knowledge about myself and about, like I said, the big book. But when I push my fears aside, when I push my resentments aside, you know, that's when I end up um, in an unfit condition, like I mentioned before. Top of 37, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Um, you know, lack of a lack of proportion and ability to think straight. So I already know that I can't rely on my own thinking, right? I have a mental twist. I have a mental blank spot. And what I really need uh, to talk to, with you about is something that my sponsor talks about um, quite a bit, which is um, the broken bridge. You know, I do have a mental blank, blank spot. Sometimes I think that, um, you know, doing things over and over again, expecting the different results. When I was talking about when I eat things in threes, uh, you know, having three of this, three of that, like 
obviously it didn't work before, but I still thought I could do it again the next time around when some, when I opened a package and said, I'm only going to have three. I mean, why did I do that year after year for year, right? Um, it never worked, but I thought mentally, right, that's, that's, that's what would work, and it didn't. Um, I'm going to continue reading on on 37, but there was always a curious mental phenomenon that par that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. The next day we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. I had no sound reasoning. Um, you know, the disease always wins. You know, the, the disease will always win out with me. Um, and I will share with you that my my story in in relapse recovery i think that what i thought was recovery and what i know recovery is today is so much different um i was in the rooms thinking that i was that i knew everything that i could do everything that um that other people were doing to, to stay abstinent but it really wasn't working i wasn't being honest i wasn't um like I said, helping others. And I really think that that was a part of my story that I needed to learn so that I could be where I'm at today. So that I could have experienced that, that way of working my program versus what I'm, what I'm doing today. Um, our behavior, I'm bottom of 37, I'm gonna continue reading and then talk a little bit more about, about my story. Our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink of, as that of, as an individual with a passion, say for jaywalking. He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast moving vehicles. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. Up to this point, you would label him as foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Look then, or luck then deserts him and he is slightly injured several times in succession. You would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. Presently, he is hit again and this time has a fractured skull. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast moving trolley car breaks his arm. He tells you he has decided to stop jaywalking for good, but if been in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. And I'm gonna continue reading just with the next paragraph. On through the years, this conduct continues accompanied by his continual promises to be careful or to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he came no, can no longer work. His wife gets a divorce and he is held up to ridicule. He tries every no means to get jaywalking, the jaywalking idea out of his head. He shuts himself up in an asylum, hoping to mend his ways. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? So, you know, he tells you he decided to stop jaywalking. How many times, how many Sundays did I say that I would stop eating and start on a Monday? I mean, how many Sundays? I couldn't even, I couldn't even tell you how many. How many New Year's Eves uh, or, you know, or New Year's mornings, let's just say. New Year's mornings, did I say, this is going to be the year. This is going to be the year I get recovered. This is it. You know, how many promises did I make to myself that, that don't work? Um, you know, divorce and ridicule. It talks about divorce and ridicule. I underlined that in this paragraph. You know, I ended up actually in a divorce. And um, ironically ridiculing my ex-husband who suffers from the disease of alcoholism. 
And I was in total denial of my own addiction. I was always pointing the, fi- the, the finger at him when all along I had my own addiction. Um, ridicule, you know, the family telling me like my parents or my brother, my brother's a, a physical education teacher. He would always tell me, Denise, you know, you're such a beautiful person inside and out. If you could just lose some weight, you know, um, that didn't work. That, that actually shamed me into eating more. Ridicule does not, at least for me, did not work. Um, concern about my health, nope. And I know they were telling me this because they love me. But in my twisted thinking, it didn't work. Um, I can't help, you know, but go back to the broken bridge because I, I kind of skipped over it because I wanted to get through the, the, the story of a jaywalker. You know, my sponsor is allergic to cats and she always says, you know, she knows better than to go into a house when someone has a cat, right? So for me, same thing. I know I have an allergy to the body. I know I have this physical limitation. So for me to, you know, continue to do something over and over again is, is insanity. Um, my broken bridge story, you know, this, this broken bridge is, is really about, you know, the insanity in my mind. What the steps do with my broken bridge to help me so that I don't go after those three pieces of Halloween candy over and over and over again, what helps me is God. The bridge in my mind is being rebuilt and it's being rebuilt to, to what God would have me be and what God would have me do. If I'm in that fit spiritual condition, God protects me. That's why when I had that extra carrot or when, I'm, when my disease is trying to sneak in, my bridge is not connected to God for some reason. And I got to find out why. I got to figure it out so that I can get connected to God again. So I'm not the jaywalker continuing over and over and expecting different results. Um, let's see. If I continue on here, we're going to go to page 39. But the actual or in the first paragraph, the center of the first, first paragraph, it says, but the actual potential alcoholic with with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge, which I just want to reiterate. I had the knowledge of the big book. I had the knowledge of the disease. I understood the doctor's opinion. I knew what I had, but self-knowledge was not enough for me. It was not enough. So I'm going to continue on now. We're going to talk about Fred. Uh, Fred is partner, I'm in the middle of 39. Fred is partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home, is happily married and the father of promising children of college age. He has so attractive a personality that he makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it is Fred. To all appearances, he is stable, a well-balanced individual, yet he is alcoholic. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he had gone to recover from a bad case of jitters. It was his first experience of this kind, and he was much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. The doctor intimated strongly that he might be worse than he realized. For a few days, he was depressed about his condition. 
He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so, in spite of his character and standing. Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic, much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problem. We told him what we knew about alcoholism. He was interested and conceded that he had some of the symptoms, but he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself. He was positive that, that this humiliating experience plus the knowledge he had acquired would keep him sober for the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would not fix it. So I just want to talk a little bit about this paragraph. You know, his income was good. His life was good. His family is good. Yeah, he's an alcoholic, right? My life was stable, but I was extremely overweight in an unhealthy body. I was so full of shame and I couldn't stop eating. You know, this story tells me I can eat when I'm happy, when things are good, and I can eat when I'm sad, when things are bad. And most, most of the time, you know, I'm, I'm filled with a lot of shame. See, Fred and I both thought that self-knowledge would fix it. But I'm going to tell you what happened and what brought me into the re recovered state that I am in today. I was sitting at a pool. Um, it was 2021. Um, and actually, before I even get to the pool, I got to tell you, I was listening to a phone meeting called A Vision for You. And um, I had been listening to it for years. Uh, a fellow, remember I was telling you about my home group that were texting me, telling me to come back to OA? A fellow from that group who had called me a long time ago about um, an almond being so upset over having an almond, an extra almond or something. And I just thought, man, this girl's crazy. She's just so crazy. I'm never going to weigh and measure my food because this girl with her almond, oh my gosh, I don't want to be obsessed over that food scale and <laughs> deal with that. That was my judgmental thinking back then. Anyway, I was listening to that phone meeting, and this is years later, and I heard her share on there, and she sounded fantastic. I was like, oh my gosh, she sounds, she sounds sane. This woman sounds like she's got her stuff together. I was so impressed because she had come such a long way from the day that she was, you know, calling me in tears over this almond. And I thought, wow, I want what she has. So I texted her and I said, hey, what are you doing? And she told me she was going to this big book workshop. She told me about it. She even sent me the link. Did I, did I do anything about it? No. But I did go on to the vision meeting and I put my name out there as a newcomer. I had already done that years ago, but I put my name out there as a newcomer. I got a ton of calls. And I was so grateful that people were, were, were calling me, but it was too overwhelming. I couldn't talk to them all. I couldn't call them all back, but I saved their name and numbers in my phone. So I thought, okay, I'm going to save them here. What ended up happening was um, six months went by and I still did nothing. You know, the desire was there, but it wasn't, the willingness wasn't there apparently because I did nothing for six months. That was, in, that was in February when I put my name out there on vision. It's July now, it's summertime. I'm sitting at the pool. I'm literally, you guys, I couldn't even get out of the lounge chair. I'm so big. I felt like a stuffed sausage in my, in my swimsuit. I wanted to get up and go in the water because it was a super hot day in Chicago, but I was embarrassed. I didn't want to get up because I was too ashamed to walk in front of people. You know, I had to walk around the chairs in front of people to get into the water. And I just didn't want people to look at me. And... At one point, I decided I'm just going to go get in the water. I'm too hot. So I got in the water. I came, I came, I could barely walk, by the way. I came back to my chair. My legs were chafing. You know, they were rubbing together like they always do when I wore dresses or swimsuits or anything that 
where I didn't have pants on, um, they would chafe and, and rub together. I sat back in the chair and when I sat down, I picked up my phone. There was a woman on there that had sent me a text and she was one of the people that reached out that I never called back when I put my name out there six months earlier in, uh, in on the Vision for You meeting. She sent me this text and she said, hi, you put your name and number out there on a vision for you back in February. And I was just wondering how you were doing. Gentle time reminder. Thank you so much. And I thought, this woman's crazy. It's been six months. How does she even remember me? And she sent, and I said to her, I, you know, because she texted and she didn't call, I sent her some, some texts back and I said, you know, I'm not doing so well. I can't even get a few days under my belt. You know, I can't get abstinent for, for two days. She said, here, try these links to these meetings. And she sent me uh, a couple meetings, a couple weekend meetings and a workshop, a big book workshop. And I don't know where the willingness came from, but I'll tell you, I clicked on one of those links and that's where I met my sponsor. And that's when I started working with a recovered sponsor and getting, uh, you know, going through the steps in the big book and really working the program of recovery. So I had spent many, many years in, um, in a place where I didn't have recovery, right? I, I was in relapse for a long time. Well, what I thought was recovery really wasn't. So I don't know if I could really call it, call it relapse. But I did spend um, many years, you know, several, you know, a decade, actually, a decade, wasting my time. Um, I'm going to just continue on so we can get through the chapter before I, I finish. Uh, let's see. We're going to tell, we're going to read page 40. Let him tell you about it. Um, middle of page 40. I was much impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism. And I frankly did not believe it. It would be possible for me to drink, that it would be possible for me to drink again. I did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink. But I was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows, that I had been usually successful in licking my other personal problems and that I would therefore be successful where you men fail. I felt I had every right to be self-confident that would it would only be a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. In this frame of mind, I went about my business for a and for a time, all it was well. I had no trouble refusing drinks and began to wonder if I had not been making too hard work for a simple matter. One day I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I had been out of town before during this particular dry spell. There was nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud in the horizon. I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner and I crossed the threshold of the dining room. The thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. I ordered a cocktail and my meal. Then I ordered another cocktail. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed. So I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty the next morning. Um, I'm thinking I'm just going to stop reading for right there, you know, just because I want to keep, keep moving forward. 
So I had no trouble refusing drinks in the past for a time that worked for me until it didn't. Just like I mentioned, like I had no trouble dieting until it didn't work anymore. You know, I tried it, you know, I, I could diet, but then it stopped working. Um, and then where it says the thought came to mind again, the disease is centered in my thoughts. The disease is centered in my thinking when I am not in a good headspace. That's when the disease sneaks in, like with that carrot. Um, let's see, as soon as I bottom of 41, as soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had no thought of the consequences at all. Uh, I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remembered what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they uh, prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind at the time and place would come, I would drink again. They had said that though I did not raise a defense, it would only one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just that did happen and more. For what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that the willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. I had never been able to understand people who said that the problem in, that the problem had them hopelessly to be defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. And I think, you know, for me, I had made, made no fight whatsoever when, when that was mentioned. You know, where was my fight? Where was my high resolve? Why didn't I pick up the phone like Bill W. did when he was at the hotel? You know, that's how it was in the disease. Why wasn't I working the steps? Why didn't I work, uh, work with a recovered sponsor earlier? You know, a mentor of mine once told me that the disease doesn't come calling, like I said, it's like a cupcake or a sugary dessert. It comes calling like, you know, a slice of watermelon that I had that I, that, you know, when I was slicing, having like a little edge, a piece of watermelon when I hadn't committed it or, you know, a couple pieces of broccoli that I took off my plate, like I mentioned, you know, my connection to God, that broken bridge, that's where the disease sneaks in when the bridge is not connected to God. Um, you know, my sponsor, when I first started working with her, had talked about the hospitalization period when you spend your time like Bill did in the hospital. You don't go out to eat, Denise. You don't take up dancing lessons, Denise. You don't, you know, you, you're going to focus on this step work and we're going to get through this, you know, one step at a time. That's what I had to do. I had to commit myself into the hospital mentally, right? Not go out to dinner. Tell my daughter, no, we're not going to coffee shops and pastry shops. I'm working this program. You know, I'm going to work on my recovery. I'm going to get healthy again and work on myself. You know, I wasn't in a state then that I could do things like that. Today, I live a different life. I can, I, you know, I'm connected with God. I have a recovered state of mind where I am able to go to places now that I couldn't go to before. Um, I'm just going to quickly, so we can finish the chapter, uh, page 42 in this, in the uh, second paragraph, it says, two of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like so much. And they asked me if I thought myself an alcoholic and if I were really licked this time. I had to concede both propositions. They piled on me heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentally, such as I had exhibited in Washington, had a hopeless condition. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. And then I'll just continue. Then they outlined the spiritual answer and program of action, which hundreds of them had followed successfully. Though I had been only a, a nominal churchman, the proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow, but the program of action 
though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window. That was not easy. But the moment I made up my mind to go through with this process, I had a curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved as in fact proved to be. And so I'll just share, you know, I did have a hopeless condition, but I connected with fellows and I told them the truth. I told them about the care. I told them about the broccoli. I told them about, you know, my insane uh, issues that I was having, my hopeless condition. And they could really relate to that. You know, even today, I had to call all my sponsees when I had an issue with that carrot and tell them exactly what happened. When I connect with fellows and tell them the truth, you know, that's when the real transfer transformation happens, right? When I'm honest with others. Um, just to finish up the chapter, quite as important was the discovery of the spiritual principles, the, the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. I have since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange it for the best moments or the worst I have now. I would not go back to living. I would not go back to it even if I could. So, you know, here, you know, they outline the spiritual answer and the, and the program of action and the spiritual principles, you guys, right? You know, st I started by putting one foot in front of the other. I started just doing one assignment at a time. I followed directions. My sponsor told me to get a way to measure food plan. I did that. She told me to text before breakfast. I did that. She told me to make three phone calls a day and stay connected with fellows. I'm doing that. She told me to go to a meeting every day. I did that. She told me to do random acts of kindness, self-sacrifice every day. Try to be self-sacrificing every day. I did that. I still do that to this day. Walk in a healthy body. Get your health, get your body moving in a healthy manner. Take a walk. You know. Um, it talks here about more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life that I lived before. You know, since working the steps, I now have a purpose in life, right? God gave me this gift. God gave me this gift of compulsive overeating so I could work with others and help others. Sponsoring is the greatest gift. I, I absolutely love being in the book with others and, and taking their, their hand and placing it in God's hand you know, looking at their life, you know, sharing my own experience about my life and connecting each other with, with God and what God would have me be. Um, I'm just going to recap here on, on 43. It says, Fred's story speaks for itself. We hope it strikes home to thousands like him. He had felt, he had felt only the first nip of the ringer. Most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. And you know, all of my problems can be solved. That's what I learned today, you know, and it's all based on my relationship with my higher power. You know, the steps led me to God. That's what the steps did. They led me to God and things I said I'd never do, like buy a food scale. I said I would never buy a food scale. Well, guess what? My sponsor told me I had to have a way to measure food plan. I bought a food scale, you know, um, making the three phone calls a day. I said, no way. I don't want to talk to people. I wanted to isolate. I wanted to do what we always do, right? Sit in front of the TV, binging with my food. No, I had to make three phone calls a day and stay connected. And those phone calls have been turned into some of the most cherished friendships that I have today. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and read. Let's see. I think, I think we're, we're just about wrapping it up, but I will just say uh, once more at the very end, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. I mean, I, I can't finish the chapter without reading that paragraph because, you know, this, this, 
disease, this miracle that I am today before you, um, you know, it concludes really, this chapter concludes with step one, but what it tells me is I have no mental defense against the first bite. My defense must come from a higher power. My only solution here is God. My only solution is a power greater than myself. That's how I'm living today. I'm living with God, walking hand in hand with others, sharing my story. God gave me this purpose and I'm going to use it. And that's why I'm actually here with all of you today. Just, you know, whether it helped one of you or none of you, you know, it was, it was me sharing my experience, strength and hope so that I could remain in a recovered state of mind today. With that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Denise, so much for sharing your experience, strength and hope with us today. We will now be transitioning into a question and answer segment. I'd like to introduce Dean, who is our moderator here. Thank you, Steph, and thank you very much, Denise. My name is Dean. I am a compulsive overeater, and as you've heard, I am the moderator today. Um, the chat is now open for sending questions. Please, if you could um, just use the chat right now for sending questions rather than uh, other chat, it just makes it a lot easier for me to read because if there's everyone putting a lot of stuff in there that aren't questions, then I uh, it's not so it's not so simple. Um, I will try to get through as many questions as possible. My first question today is, um, and these are in no particular order, unfortunately, and some of them if some of them overlap. Please just um, just refer back to that. Question is that you shared about being sponsored by a big book thumper. How do you sponsor now? What is your focus literature wise? Big book, OA literature, both question mark. Yeah, I, I sponsor, I do sponsor out of the big book using the big book um, today. And I do uh, refer to the AA 12 and 12 and occasionally the OA 12 and 12, but mostly the big book is, is how I sponsor today. Yeah. Thank you. You mentioned uh, slips and how do you feel about sponsors having a slip? What do you recommend? Should they have one? Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's inevitable. I know when I was working with my sponsor early on, um, I, I didn't pick up. I was, I was really committed to the program at that point. Um, you know, I had spent so many years being lazy and not willing to do the steps because I knew the hard work that was going to go into it. When I finally decided to work the steps, I was like, okay, I'm really going to work it. I texted her my food in the morning and I literally said to myself when I went to work and saw all the sugary foods, I said to myself, I didn't text that to my sponsor. I'm not having that today. And I just kept, you know, the blinders on and kept moving forward. Um, I was white knuckling it a bit in the beginning. I'm not going to lie, but I do, um, have sponsees that occasionally will will have a slip or pick up. And what do I do? What my sponsor taught me to do um, was she said, you take, because I'd have to call and ask her, how do you do that? What do I do when someone picks up? And she said, you go back and you review. You, you ask them to review, go through your step work. Like let's say they were on step three and they had picked up. I'd say, okay, let's go back to step one and do a review and figure out why it was that you picked up why it was you were blocked from God, what was blocking you. And, um, and they would go ahead and review their step one, maybe in step two, they'd look at, at the bedevilments, they'd look at 
Um, or, or they'd look at calamity, pomp, worship of other things. What's going on in your life that, that caused you to pick up? That's what we got to do. Because it even said in the chapter that we read today, they worked with Jim. They went back and worked with Jim. They reviewed with Jim why he picked up. And that's what my sponsor taught me. You don't just dump a sponsee because they picked up the food. You work with them and you find out why. Why? And, then, and, and, and the review usually will reveal what, what it was. And what's that? Thank you. What made you come back into the rooms? Was it a gift of desperation? Question mark. Mm. Yeah, um, I wasn't doing it on my own. You know, like I said, I left at 128 pounds. I came back at 230 or 236, I think, or 238, somewhere around there. I stopped weighing myself, but you know how that goes, right? Um, but I, I. I wasn't able to do it on my own. That's what brought me back. It was, it was that gift of desperation. But you know what? I wasn't quite that desperate because I continued to kill myself for seven more years eating the food. I mean, I continued to binge and eat and didn't. And what was that all about? That's called laziness. That's called procrastination. You know, I, I didn't, I knew the work that, that the step, that the steps were going to, you know, involve. And I was lazy. That's really the bottom line. I, I was lazy and didn't, didn't want to do the hard work. It wasn't until I became willing to go through the step work again that, you know, and, and then and how did that, how did that happen? I tell you that day at the pool, I think I hit a life bottom. That, that day at the pool was a life bottom for me. I hit a bottom that day and I was just so ashamed to even be in my own skin. I wanted to die. And that, that was the gift of desperation and, and willingness it took for me to click on those links the next day. Thank you. Denise, what are your morning practices? And sorry, yep. Uh, my morning practices. So I, before I, my feet even hit the floor, I ask God to drink my, direct my thinking and, um, you know, show me ways where I can be useful to, to God and to others. Um, then my feet hit the floor. I usually go to the bathroom first and then I'll come back and, and sit. I have a chair in my room and a little meditation space. I, I think it's important for me to have that space in my house, the place where I go to do that's mine. Um, I do read some daily, daily uh, readers, but I also listen to um, uh, a Bible app that I listen to. And then I listen to music sometimes. Um, uh, generally I will do some journaling and um, you know, it's funny. When, when I had a, a, that issue recently with, um, you know, with the carrots and, and a little slice of watermelon one time, my sponsor said, what's going on with your prayer meditation? And I told her, and she said, you know, it sounds like it's a checkbox for you, Denise. It sounds like a checkbox. I think you need to switch up your prayer meditation. And I did. I started doing two-way prayer. Um, she suggested some spiritual reading. So now I'm doing some spiritual reading in the morning, not just a daily reader, but I'm actually reading some spiritual, you know, spiritual books. Um, that's been really helpful. So I think it's important just to keep changing it up so it doesn't get stale. Thank you. I have a couple of questions here, which I'll try and align in regards to the broken bridge, um, how, how it relates and is it related to the mental blank spot? Uh, could you give examples, please, of what that might look like to you? A broken yeah, bridge. Yes. Yeah. So the broken bridge for me, I'll give you an example. 
This is how the Broken Bridge works in my life. I was riding my bike across uh, on a path, like, you know, they, we have these forest preserves in Illinois, beautiful paths that you can ride your bike on. One of the paths had to take you across a busy street. I had to cross this busy street on my bike and I, I you know, I, I rode the bike across the busy street and I thought I could pop, pop my front wheel up and then get on top of the curb to get up back on the trail. So I did like a pop a wheelie to get up on the curb and I flipped over my handlebars and I, and I hit my head. I had a helmet on, but I still hit my head. It was dangerous. It was not good. I think I had a little slight concussion. That's the bridge. That's, that, that's what happened to me, right? Now, what do you think I did the next time I, I rode my bike across that street? The next time I, rode, I, I was going to cross that street, I got off the bike and I walked it and I lifted it up above that big chunky curb and I got onto, back onto the trail. That's where my bridge was working. I knew if I rode and tried to pop a wheelie and front, hit, pop my front tire that I'd slip over those handlebars and I'd hit my head. I learned that does not work for me and I could get hurt. So now I walk my bike across the street and I lift it up nicely. The broken bridge is when I, when I don't follow that, right? Um, my sponsor, like I said, has an allergy to cats and she likes to use that cat analogy. Like she knows she can't go into someone's house when they have a cat. Oh, or sunburn, you get a really bad sunburn, right? And your, your, your skin is, is, is all red. You don't go out there without sunscreen the next time. That's where your bridge is working. But with food, it doesn't work. With food, my bridge is broken. With food, I talk about those three pieces of Halloween candy, or I talk about that half a donut, and there I am having the other half. My bridge is broken when it comes to food because I have this, this disease. I hope that makes Thank you. Um, how did you eventually form a plan of eating and that plan, how do you approach eating out? Very good question. Um, my sponsor helped me with my plan of eating. I know a lot of people get a nutritionist um, and that's really great, but my sponsor has been um, in recovery and recovered for 38 years. So I kind of take her lead. You know, she knows she's been doing this for a long time. Um, we worked on a plan of eating that really works for me. And um, you know, it helped me get to the, the, the healthy body weight that I am today. I'll tell you, I still commit my food to my sponsor every morning. Um, I still send it. I still weigh and measure my food every day. Um, that plan of eating that I have um, obviously doesn't include binge foods. And I don't play around with food either. I'm going to tell you, I don't, you know, people say uh, they try to mix like certain things, um, you know, you can have oatmeal mixed with raspberries and make it into this like dessert-like thing. I don't do that. Um, that's not something I do. I don't dance with the disease. I don't. I don't play with, with my food. I have. I have my normal food, and some people might say it's boring. I, I do eat the same thing like every other day during the week. I plan my lunches where it's like Monday, Wednesday, Friday is this. It's a cold, cold lunch. I usually have like a, a salad with some, some protein in it. And then Tuesday, Thursday, it's a hot lunch. I do, you know, like cauliflower rice or something like that with chicken or whatever. Like I, I plan my meals. Um, every other day, it's the same thing. Every other day, the breakfast changes. And it's the same every other day because I keep it simple. Um, I don't need to do fancy things like mixing things together to make something that seems like a dessert. You know, uh, it's not necessary for me. Um, and as far as eating out, I can eat out today. I don't bring my scale to restaurants. Uh, I do eyeball it. I do my very best. Um, 
I will say when it comes to eating out, I don't do appetizers and I don't do desserts. Uh, I just don't. That's not not part of my plan. I scope out the menu before I go. I still text my food to my sponsor in the morning. Um, I don't like to make changes because, you know, changes is me just trying to, you know, self-will sneak it in. I'm not going to let my, my ego and self-will sneak in. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. I, I don't do dessert. I don't do appetizers and I stick to, to, to my meals. Thank you. Got a couple of minutes left. I'll try and get through as many questions as I can. How do you define your abstinence? Um, I assume, yeah, that's what it says. Okay. Abstinence for me is uh, refraining from compulsive uh, eating and, and uh, food behaviors. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not even just about the food though. I've got to tell you like abstinence for me is staying spiritually fit and connected to God. It's those random acts, acts of kindness. Um, today at the grocery store, I just, uh, you know, uh, I, I meet people. I live in Chicago and it's, it's a big city and, and we do have some poverty here. So there's a lot of homeless around. They usually do a lot of peddling by the grocery stores and, and, and I'll, I'll introduce myself. I give them my name. I tell them who I am. I ask them their name. Um, and then every week when I see them again, if, if I see them again, I'll always call them by their name. So they know that they're just as important as everyone else in this world. Um, I might give them, you know, a dollar here or there so they can get something to eat. One time I brought out some, some, uh, some goods, you know, some, some breakfast foods for one of the gentlemen to have. I mean, those random acts of kindness keep me connected to God because I think God really is, is, is in all of us. And like when I speak to fellows on the phone, outreach calls, like we're connected in that way. So abstinence for me is not only just about following my food plan and sticking with my food plan, but it's also following my life, God's purpose for me in life. And, and really living in abstinent and saying life with, with, with doing uh, God's will and God's work. Thank you. Uh, Denise, could you explain the difference between taking the actions in recovery and it not working for you versus taking the actions that led to spiritual fitness? What are the differences between your previous recovery versus your current experience? Yeah, I probably didn't articulate that very well, but my previous, um, where, where I was before was um, in total self-will, thinking I, you know, trying to control it. Like, remember I said I could try to get like a couple days of abstinence and that, then I'd lose it and then I'd get a couple more days because I, I kept trying to control um, my eating, um, you know. Like I, like I even said, like, I'll just have this, the wheat bread or um, sugar-free this, you know, but those are the differences. I don't do that today. I don't play around with that today. Um, that's just, that's just not, uh, we're, it's not something, and it's, it's not even that I don't do it, but I don't, I don't want to. I don't, I guess before um, the food was calling me because the allergy of the body had kicked in and I just constantly was, was wanting it, but today, you know, and I remember saying to my sponsor one time, I was crying over the phone and I said, I'm never going to get it. I'm never going to get it. And she said, Denise, this, this is something you're going to get. This is something God removes from you. And I truthfully, truthfully believe that God has removed this from me. God has removed this obsession from me, this obsession about controlling my food. Um, there's so much freedom in weighing and measuring and just giving it away in the morning. Like when I give my food away to God and to my sponsor, it's done. Like I'm not obsessing about it anymore. I don't, I can walk into any restaurant or any place and see whatever it is and you enjoy, you enjoy what you're eating. I got this coming. And every time I have my abstinent food, even if I have a thought, Ooh, that looks good. Even if I have a thought, 
I'll tell you what, my abstinence food plan, my abstinence food that I eat, that thought always happens. Once I have my food and my healthy food and I feel good about what I'm eating, that thought is gone. Because God protects me. Okay, thank you. We've run out of question time. Have one more. How would you tell somebody that's in constant relapse and struggle to let go? How would I tell someone to let go? I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. Sorry, the let the let go, let God. How do you explain to someone that's in constant relapse that's holding on as tight as they can to their recovery how to tell them to let go and let God? Very good question. And I'll tell you, this is what worked for me. I told you in the beginning when I started working the steps with my sponsor, I was kind of white knuckling it. Okay. I go into the office, I see these things, and it was like, oh my gosh, put the blinders on, just keep going. Right. My sponsor did a podcast once and she said something like, be gone and tell the disease to go away. Right. So I started talking back to the disease. I'd walk in the office, I'd see that box of whatever it was, and I'd say, be gone. I am not having you today. I did not text you to my sponsor. I am not having you, basically telling it to go screw off, right? I'm not having you. So I started talking back to the disease in that way. As soon as I did that, and I and just kept putting one foot in front of the other and focusing on what I needed to do and following you know, what I texted my sponsor, all of that started to pass. Now I can walk through literally just this past, uh, what was it, Fat Tuesday or whatever they call it. You know, there was a whole bunch of other stuff out there. And I was like, oh, you guys enjoy. Like, it doesn't even bother me now because I can walk right by and know that God's got my back. Like, I feel like I have this armor around me that God's just protecting me, protecting my heart and my soul and, and my body and my mind. And and I and I, and I'm able to let go. I don't I don't want that anymore for myself because I don't want to be that girl in the chair in that chair at the pool. I don't want to be her anymore. That's not the life I want. That was not living my life. Today I'm living my life. Thank you very much. It is now time for the question and answer finish, and I will uh, hand the meeting back to Steph. Thanks, Steph. Thanks, Denise. Thank you so much, Dean, and thanks, Denise. According to our seventh tradition, we are fully self-supporting through our own contributions. As we have now moved to virtual meetings, it is important that we continue to be fully self-supporting. This allows Overeaters Anonymous to continue to carry the message to those that still suffer. You are able to send your donations through our website at www.ad4l.info. For those of you able to see the Zoom chat, the link is also posted there. Thank you all for your support. It is appreciated. Our next meeting, our, a reminder that a Design for Living Big Book OA is a daily meeting. We are based out of Melbourne, Australia. The recording from today's workshop will be available from our website, where you can also find out about other upcoming events and speakers. Visit our website at www.ad4l.info. In closing, I would like to thank you all for your service in coming here today. By following 12 steps, attending meetings regularly, and using the array tools, we are changing our lives. You will find hope and encouragement in Overeaters Anonymous. To the newcomer, we suggest at attending at least six different meetings to learn the many ways OA can help you. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. 
please remember our commitment to honor each other's anonymity. What you hear here, whom you see here, when you leave here, let it stay here. Let us all reach out by phone or email to newcomers, returning members, and each other. Together, we get better. To close the meeting, will Emma please unmute and read promises for us? Um, Emma, compulsive overeater. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we'll be amazed before we are halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We'll comprehend the word serenity and we'll know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We'll lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We'll intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realise that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They're being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialise if we work for them.